So that's Leviticus chapter 1 through 9. As we begin this morning, I want you to imagine going up and knocking on a door. I want you to think about some of the various situations that you might find yourself doing that. So you might be like me, and one time in your life you had a job as a door-to-door salesman. There's a certain fear that comes over you when knocking on a stranger's door to sell them something. Or you might have had the experience of being a, a kid who you know, broke your neighbor's window. And it was probably the scariest neighbor on the block. And you've got to walk up there, maybe with your dad, and say, hey, I'm sorry I broke your window. Can we pay for it? That's not a very good feeling to walk up to that door. On the other hand, you might walk up to the door of your best friend and ask him to come out to play. Or you might think about going to your childhood home after being away for a long time and what it's like to open that door. You might not even knock on that one, right? I wonder how you can compare your idea of what it means to be a Christian or the Christian religion to to those different doors. To you, does Christianity seem more like walking up to that door of the, the window you broke, ready to get your punishment? Or does it feel like going home? This morning, I want us to think about that as we look at these first nine chapters of the book of Leviticus. Because what we see here is God's people approaching his door. And I want you to think about, are you approaching God's door as going home or getting punishment? If you've read through these chapters this week, then you know that the bulk of these chapters is, are, are contain laws for various kinds of sacrifices. These are the sacrifices the Israelite worshipers are to bring to God. That's what we see in chapters 1 through 7. So first, God instructs the Israelites in general about their sacrifices. And then in chapters 6 and 7, he gives special instructions to the priests about their role in offering the sacrifices. So chapter 1 through 7 gives God's laws for sacrifices. Then in chapters 8 and 9, we find the, the first action in the book of Leviticus. So first in Leviticus 8, Moses acts as a kind of priest for the priests. So he offers sacrifices that are to pay for the sins of Aaron and his sons and then to ordain them, to set them aside as holy to the Lord. So it's the consecration of the priesthood. And then newly consecrated, the high priest Aaron then offers the first sacrifices for Israel in Leviticus chapter 9. So that's the basic structure of these nine chapters. Chapters 1 through 7, God gives laws for sacrifices. In chapters 8 and 9, God's mediators offer sacrifices to God. The goal of these sacrifices is for sinners to fellowship with God in his dwelling place. When we get to the end of chapter 9, we'll see how this happens in the most dramatic way. But before we get there... I want you to recall how we said that the tabernacle is meant to be a kind of return to the Garden of Eden, a return to the days when God dwelled with his people on earth and his people lived and worshipped him. G.K. Beale calls the tabernacle Eden remixed, playing on the idea of of remixing an old song, right? But it has to be remixed, though, because of the existence of sin in the world. 
It can't just be an easy return to Eden because sin exists. Sin is the great barrier between God and his creatures. And so this morning we're going to see the way the tabernacle offers three answers to the problem of sin here in Leviticus 1 through 9. Here's how we're going to work through these chapters. First, sin stinks to God, but sacrifice pleases him. So the first problem, sin stinks to God, but sacrifices please him. Second, sin pollutes, but blood purifies. Sin pollutes, but blood purifies. And then third, sin separates, but the priests bring sinners near to God. Sin separates, but the priests bring sinners near to God. The first problem we see then is that sin stinks to God. Now, I admit that word stinks is a bit provocative, but the reason I use it is because of something that God says about all these sacrifices in chapters 1 through 7. He says that the sacrifices, when they are brought to God in a way that God ordained, that these sacrifices are a pleasing aroma to God. Sin stinks to God, but sacrifices are a pleasing aroma to him. We'll talk more about what that means in a minute, but for now I want you to understand what I mean by sin stinks. What I mean is that sin arouses God's righteous wrath. The right way for God to respond to sin is in judgment. That's what I mean about sin stinks to God. The righteous God hates and judges sinners. Now, we can't cover all of the ins and outs of the sacrifices, but I do want to give you a 30,000-foot overview of them really quickly as we begin. So beginning in chapter 1 and going through chapter 6, verse 7, we find five different kinds of sacrifices. First, the burnt offering, then the grain offering in chapter 2, then the peace offering in chapter 3. Chapters 4 through 6 contain the sin offering and the guilt offering. So those are our five offerings. The grain offering is the only one of these offerings that doesn't require animal sacrifice. It's a gift of grain or unleavened bread, the majority of which is to be eaten by the priests. It's a holy thing that they're to eat in a holy place. Now, even though this one wasn't an animal sacrifice, it was usually offered on top of the burnt offering. So it is kind of related to these animal sacrifices. In the case of the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering, only part of the animal was consumed on the altar. So in the sin and the guilt offering, the priest was supposed to eat the offering under certain circumstances. And in the case of the peace offering, the worshiper and I think the worshiper's family would have eaten it there in the court of the tabernacle. But the mainstay of tabernacle worship, offered every morning and every evening, is the whole burnt offering. In this offering, Everything except the animal skin was to be consumed on the fire. So it's in some ways the most costly offering. The worshiper gets nothing from it physically in terms of food. The priests get no food from it. The whole thing is consumed and goes up to God. The big headline of the way all of these offerings work, though, is that sacrifices turn away God's wrath from sinners. Sacrifices 
are God's appointed way of dealing with the stench of sin. So I want to just go ahead and read with you together the laws for the burnt offering here in chapter 1, verse 8. We're just going to read this first section, and the rest of chapter 1 contains kind of other scenarios, other kinds of burnt offering you can bring, but this first one gives you the kind of general sense. So Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Listen to God's word. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his burnt offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is, the that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put, the, put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's, Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priests shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Again, notice how that, that, uh, that collection of verses ends in verse 9 with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This is a crucial phrase. It's repeated 13 times in Leviticus 1 through 9. And it's something, again, that's common to all of these offerings. You see it at the end of the passage we read, and you'll see it at the end of almost every description of an offering. Over and over again, as God issues these laws about sacrifices, the Lord says that they will have a pleasing aroma to him. This phrase here is not simply to tell us that the sacrifices are, are good or pleasant, that they were that. The pleasing aroma tells us that because of the sacrifice, God's anger is turned away from the sinner. Sinners deserve punishment, but sacrifice turns away the anger and the punishment. Turns it away from the sinner to the animal that's burned up on the altar. Through the sacrifice... The sinner's stench has become a pleasing aroma. And I'm not just making this up. The key text for this is the one we already read in our Old Testament reading, Genesis 8, beginning in verse 20. Again, this, this verse begins, uh, or this verse comes just after the flood. So uh, the flood is the great judgment of God against the sinfulness of mankind. You know, Genesis 6 is like that stench wafting up to God, and God sees the evil of mankind and resolves to judge the world, to destroy it, and only by His grace to save Noah and his family. So in Genesis 8, verse 20, by this point, the ark has just landed on Mount Ararat. All the animals and the people have gotten off the ark. So listen again to what God says here. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. So long before the Levitical law is given, Noah offers a burnt offering. 
Apparently something that God's people knew about from the time that, that they were kicked out of the garden. Here Noah offers this burnt offering before the Lord, and the Lord approves and accepts this offering. The way the text reads, we see the word when. It's when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma that he resolves to never again curse the ground because of man's evil. This is kind of the great resolution to the flood narrative. God's anger in chapter 6 is resolved by the pleasing aroma of Noah's sacrifice in chapter 8. Because of Noah's offering, God resolves to bring his wrathful judgment to an end. The sacrifice of Noah turns away God's wrath from mankind. So consider the picture we have in Leviticus. God is speaking from the tent of meeting to his people gathered around there at the entrance. And these people are a stench because of their sin. They're no better morally than the generation that brought on the flood. Just a few chapters earlier, remember, they have sinned with the golden calf on Mount Sinai. So they deserve God's wrath. But to these objects of wrath, God speaks and he tells them, how to turn away his wrath. He says in chapter 1, verse 3, that the worshiper shall bring the burnt offering to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that it may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Guilty sinners can be accepted by God through the sacrifices One scholar translates pleasing aroma as propitiating savor. Propitiation is just a theological term that means turns away wrath. God's wrath is turned away from the sinner and the judgment is poured out on the animal substitute. So all of these sacrifices are meant to show the sinner the way to be accepted by God. It wasn't just the yearly day of atonement sacrifices that have sin in view or just the sin offerings that have sin in view. All the sacrifices are meant to teach God's people that sin must be paid for. All the sacrifices hold out a promise that God's judgment is turned away from the sinner who brings his sacrifice by faith. The Lord says that these sacrifices make atonement for sin. And that's a hugely important word in this book of Leviticus. Atonement has the idea of ransom, a price paid to rescue sinners from God's judgment. As we mentioned last week, the sinner was to lay his hand on the animal, to press down on its head as if to say, this animal is me. As if to say, death is the proper payment for my sin. What this animal is about to go through by being annihilated on the altar, I deserve that. And God accepts the animal's death. The sinner's guilt is removed. God's wrath is turned away. Atonement has been made. The English word just means what it says, atonement. Reconciliation is achieved by the death of the sacrifice. As we look back on these sacrifices at Christians, we may be tempted to think of them as just empty rituals. And to be honest, sometimes Israel did treat them as empty rituals. 
sort of superstitions. And when God saw that, he judged them for it and he rebuked them for it. It's clear in the Old Testament, God hates hypocritical sacrifices. But what we should see is that God provided these sacrifices as a, a temporary means for these Old Testament people to draw near to him and to have their sins forgiven. Real forgiveness is offered here. It may be a little bit analogous to children getting money for doing chores around the house. You know, it's not a real job. Your parents, they could do the work. You know, they don't have to pay you. But you get real money for doing the dishes and raking the yard. The money's real, right? You probably couldn't really get paid for that at anybody else's house. But your parents give you real money for that. Well, God gave them real forgiveness for coming to him by these appointed means. One scholar described this worship as establishing a system of credit, but the real payment of the accumulated debt awaited the son's crucifixion. So instead of dismissing what God provided these old covenant people, we need to see how we need God's wrath to be turned away from us. We are just like them. We are weighed down by guilt. Our sin and our guilt, they make us enemies of God. We deserve wrath. What God assumed about his people standing there at the tent of meeting in Leviticus is true for us as, as well. We, we are enemies of God, separated from him, and we're powerless to come to God on our own. We're powerless to turn away his wrath by anything that we can do. Do you understand your sin in those ways? Do you understand that your sin separates you from God? Whatever your sins are, whether they seem especially big or relatively small, your sin condemns you before God. It's offensive to God. It stinks. But the good news of the gospel is that the sacrifice of Jesus once and for all turns away God's wrath from sinners who trust in him. Listen to 1 John 4, verse 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is the one sent by God to turn away God's wrath from sinners. If you come to God through Jesus, you're accepted to God. Your stink is turned into a pleasing aroma in Christ. And this is what we confessed this morning when we said that Christ, by his obedience and death, did make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice on behalf of them who were justified. Uh, God satisfies his own justice in himself, in Christ's death. We deserve to face God's justice but God is pleased to turn his justice on himself in the Son of God. God accepts us in Christ. Christ makes atonement for us in his sacrifice. In Christ, we become a pleasing aroma to God. Are you starting to see how approaching God can be like that homecoming if we come in Christ? The old covenant worshiper laid his hand on the lamb as if to say, this is me. I deserve death. 
The new covenant worshiper lays his hands of faith on Christ and says, my hope is in him. He bore the wrath of God for me. Is he your hope? Do you understand the judgment that your sin deserves? Do you see the way it offends God? Sin stinks to God, but Jesus' sacrifice pleases him. And in Christ, you can become a pleasing aroma to God. All your sins borne away, God's wrath averted from you. Do you know Christ's saving work for yourself? Sin not only stinks, but sin pollutes. It pollutes the sinner with guilt, and we'll see that it even pollutes God's tabernacle with the stench of death. That's what the offerings for sin and guilt teach us in Leviticus chapters 4 through 6. The pattern of worship in the tabernacle usually began with a sin offering, and then proceeded to the burnt offering, and then finally concluded with the peace offering. And so the kind of arc of tabernacle worship began with the purification of sin and ended with fellowship with God. The peace offering is that meal that sinners could eat in God's presence. But worship has to begin with purification from sin. I want to read to you Leviticus chapter 4 verses 1 through 12 where we see the sin offering first introduced. You can read along with me there. Leviticus chapter 4 Verse 1, starting on page 82 of the Bibles provided. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is in the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys, just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. But the skin of the bull and all of its flesh with its head, its legs, its entrails, and its dung, all the rest of the bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place, to the ash heap, and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. Now in this first passage of, of chapter 4, we're told about the law for sin offerings, but we're told specifically about the law for sin offerings when the sinner is the anointed priest. So if you were to go through chapter 4 and 5, you would see kind of cases offered for when the sinner is the anointed priest or when the person is or when the sinner is the whole congregation of Israel as in chapter 4 verse 13 or when the sinner is a leader as in chapter 4 verse 22 
And then as if when the sinner is a common person in chapter 4, verse 27. And what we, we see as you go through this kind of list of sinners and, and you look at the differences, what you see there is that the, the greater the, the implications of the sin, so if the sin involves the whole people, as in the case of the, the anointed priest or the whole congregation, then the, the cost of the sacrifice is higher. A bull is required in those cases. When the sinner is a common person, the cost of the sacrifice is just a female goat. Additionally, when you see the sin involving the whole people, the blood of the sacrifice has to be brought into a more holy place. So if you remember the geography of the tabernacle, you have a starting kind of the wilderness is like the unclean place. Then you have the camp of Israel, which is supposed to be clean. Then you have the, the tent, right? The, the, or the, the courtyard, the entrance, as it's called here, which is sort of the, the least holy place of the tabernacle. You go one level further in and you get to the holy place. Inside the holy place, you have the, the menorah, you have the altar of incense, and you have the showbread table. And then there's one level further, the most holy place, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And between the holy place and the most holy place is that veil where the cherubim is embroidered. Okay, so when the, the whole congregation sins or the high priest sins, the blood has to be brought to that second level of holiness. It has to be placed on the actual curtain that divides the holy place and most holy place. Blood has to be put on the horns of the altar of incense there. And the, the image we're given here is that the sin of Israel both pollutes Israel with guilt and it pollutes God's holy place. It pollutes God's tabernacle. The greater the sin, the more pollution. The farther into the holy places the sin reaches. So on the Day of Atonement, blood has to be brought into the most holy place and to be put on the Ark of the Covenant itself. Now this may all seem kind of like interesting trivia for Bible nerds, but what it shows us is the polluting power of sin. It shows us the danger that Israel is in that if Israel and its priests don't guard and keep the tabernacle and obey God's laws, God's holy place can be so defiled that God abandons it. As we'll see later, the work of the priest is to, to serve and work in the, in the tabernacle so as to protect it from being defiled. We see the danger of sin then. Sin defiles. Sin defiles the sinner with guilt and sin defiles the place of worship. Sin defiles the place of worship and if it doesn't go unchecked, it can close off the way to God. That's the danger that Israel lived in constantly. We should also consider what kind of sin defiles. Just briefly turn to chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. And we're going to, I'm just going to read a list of, of kind of cases of ways that someone can sin. Actually, we'll start in verse 2. If anyone touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean wild animal or a carcass of an unclean livestock or a carcass of an unclean swarming things, and it is hidden from him and he has become unclean and realizes his guilt, or if he touches human uncleanness of whatever sort the uncleanness may be with which one becomes unclean and it is hidden from him, when he comes to know it and realizes his guilt, or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him when he comes to know it, and when he realizes his guilt in any of these, 
When he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord his compensation for the sin that he has committed. What, what I want you to notice about these sins is that they're what the author of Leviticus calls unintentional sins. Right? They're not the person who wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to defy the Lord today. I'm going to blaspheme his name or commit adultery or kill my neighbor. They're not those kinds of premeditated sins. They're kind of, again, unintentional. The, the rash word spoken in a moment of anger or you know, accidentally touching something unclean. So, the, so we have this idea of unintentionality. We also have this idea that the person committing them sometimes doesn't realize it at first. But they come to realize it and they confess it and bring their offering. All that to say is that the sin that pollutes is relatively minor sin. All sin pollutes. And as we look at the sort of case law for the major sins, those sins often require death of the one who sinned, like in the case of adultery. Sin pollutes. It pollutes the worshiper and it pollutes the holy place. But blood purifies. And that may be the most surprising thing about the way this whole system works. None of us, I think, have a very high view of blood, right? I mean, we're maybe glad if we need a blood transfusion and the hospital has our blood type. But if we see blood on the floor, that's a problem, right? If we see blood on our, our shirt, we want to clean it up, right? We want to figure out how to get the blood out. We'd rather have nothing to do with blood. But the Lord has a different view of blood. In the Lord's economy, blood represents life. We see that actually, in, he says it explicitly in Leviticus chapter 17, that the life of the flesh is in the blood. Blood was holy. Blood, in a sense, is the opposite of death. Even though it doesn't really make sense to us, right? We see blood when something dies. But in this case, that blood that's shed from the animal and collected, it symbolizes life. And that's why it can purify. So blood is placed on the curtain of the holy place to purify it. It's placed on the horns of the altar to purify it. We'll see when we look at Aaron's consecration, blood is placed on Aaron's right ear and right thumb and right toe to purify him, to make him holy. It's sprinkled on the garments to make them holy. Christ, or the, the blood here, purifies. And that's a remarkable thing. Sin pollutes, but blood purifies. God provided blood of a sacrifice to make atonement for sinners. And this is very good news. So how can it be that a sinner can approach God's presence and it be good news? Only when that sinner is covered by the blood of the lamb. Only when that sinner is covered by this life-giving blood. This is the good news that Leviticus holds out to sinners. I want you to imagine then, not you going up to that door to make the sales call or you going up to get your punishment, but what must it have been like for an Israelite to go to the tabernacle leading his livestock? It couldn't have been a very private thing, right? Now, do we imagine that that was meant to be a kind of shameful pilgrimage? you know, from wherever the sheep pens were to the gate of the tent of meeting? I think we would think of it as shameful. And I would never want to be exposed like that. 
I would never want everyone to know, well, I guess Bob there has some sin to confess, so he's going up to the temple. Right? We wouldn't want people to know that. But what if we're convicted that there is life for sinners there? What if we're convinced of the message that God holds out that sin pollutes us all, but blood purifies? If we're convicted of that, it becomes a joyful thing. That's Bob, and he believes the promises that God holds out in the tabernacle. Bob knows he's polluted by sin, but he knows there's purification in the blood. And so he's going to the tabernacle to be purified, to make his sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, we need to see the goodness of taking hold of the blood of Christ of being washed in his blood. It's good news. Now I can't say for sure how the Israelites looked at each other when they went and made that pilgrimage. I can imagine at times during great hypocrisy and sin that there was all kinds of ways it was messed up. And we can see churches that have messed up ways of dealing with sin. But I hope that we see That coming to Christ to be washed in his blood is a joyful thing. A thing to be celebrated. It's why we sing strange songs that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that blood lose all their guilty stains. Now imagine if we had a a friend from, from the neighborhood who didn't know anything about Jesus, that would just seem bizarre to them. But can you see why it's good news? Because Jesus' blood is better than the blood of these bulls and goats. That Jesus' blood really does wash away the stain of sin from those who are polluted by it. If we look at the first few chapters of Leviticus and the the sacrifices there, we noted that the pleasing aroma was the repeated refrain. But when we get to the chapters four and following and the emphasis on the sin offerings, we see another refrain. You'll see it in verse 20 of chapter 4. And the priests shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. The priests shall make atonement, and the sinner shall be forgiven. That's the drumbeat of the Leviticus laws about the sin offering. Is that the drumbeat of your life? There is atonement for you in Christ. Is that the the, the drumbeat of our church? We are the people forgiven by Jesus. Is his atoning work our joy? We should celebrate together the way that God forgives sins. That's what this table is meant to be when we take the Lord's Supper. A celebration that God forgives sins. That we are no longer polluted by sin, but purified by the blood of Christ. Sin pollutes, but the blood of Jesus purifies. And this is good news. Well, here's the third way that the tabernacle answers sin. Sin separates, but the priest brings sinners near to God. We see this reality played out throughout the sacrifices. So if you read chapters 1 through 7 carefully, you see that the worshiper has a role to play. He has to pick out the goat. He has to bring it to the tabernacle. He has to lay his hand on it. He has to slaughter it. He has to flay it, divide it up. He has to wash the entrails and give them to Aaron. But there's only so much that the worshiper can do. 
the worshiper is not allowed to put his own sacrifice on the altar. That's because the worshiper is not holy. But Aaron is holy. The priest is, has been consecrated as holy. So the worshiper brings their sacrifice to the priest, and the priest then can take it from the worshiper and place it on God's holy altar. So what we see is that in order to be accepted by God, the worshiper needs the ministry of the priest. He needs the ministry of God's holy servants. And so that's what we see chapter 8 is all about, God setting aside Aaron and his sons as God's holy servants. But again, it's interesting to see that even here, holy things must first be purified if they are to be used by God. Nobody is innately holy, and Aaron and his sons are no different. They don't have any sort of innate superpower that qualifies them to be priests. What qualifies them to be priests is that God chose them, and now he sanctifies them in the sacrifices that Moses makes in chapter 8. So Moses kind of serves in this priestly capacity for Aaron by making a sin offering and then a burn offering for Aaron and his sons. Aaron and his sons have to be purified by Moses with blood, just like the tabernacle itself. So as I mentioned a second ago, after Moses makes a sin offering for them and after he makes a burnt offering, he makes a new offering that hasn't been mentioned called the ordination offering. This especially applies to the priest. So we can see this in verses 22 and 23 of chapter 8. If you want to turn there, look at that. 8.22. Then he, Moses, presented the other ram, the ram of ordination. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. I'm guessing there aren't too many other toes mentioned in the Bible, but here we have one. So with this anointing with sacrificial blood, the blood of the ram of ordination, the priests are totally consecrated from head to toe. They are set apart as holy to the Lord. And in this way, they are like the tabernacle. So the tabernacle has the same thing done to it. All of the parts of the tabernacle are anointed with blood at some point. Both the tabernacle and the priests are made holy. They're cleansed by sacrificial blood. In this way, we see the priests kind of belong to the tabernacle. They're inseparably joined to God's holy dwelling place. Again, even their garments are sprinkled with blood. What we need to see, though, is that because God sanctifies the priests, worshipers can draw near to God and have their sins atoned for. Throughout Leviticus, we see the priests as God's agents working God's works on his behalf. So when the worshiper comes, the priests examine the sacrificial animals and receive them. One writer says that the priest looks at that animal the way that God looks into the soul of the worshiper. The priests are like God's eyes and hands. When we read how sinners were atoned for and forgiven, it, the priests are the ones who are said to do the atoning work. So it says, the priests shall make atonement for him and for his sins, and he shall be forgiven. The priest makes the atonement. God works through the priest's work. They're God's holy servants. And finally, we see that the kind of end of tabernacle worship is the benediction in Leviticus 9.22. Then Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and blessed them. 
And that's God's blessing. The priest speaks on God's behalf. And he announces a blessing through his servant to his people. The priest represents God. And the priest represented God's people. So on behalf of the worshiper, the priest places the worshiper's sacrifice on the altar. On behalf of the worshiper, the, the priest anoints the horns of the altar with the sacrifice's blood. Again, the worshiper can't do that. He can't touch those things. But the priest is holy. And so the priest can do for the worshiper what the worshiper is unable to do, not allowed to do for himself. The high priest has the name of the tribes of Israel engraved in stones on his breastplate. And he carries those with him as he goes into the holy place, the most holy place on the day of atonement. So the priest is kind of like a a living prayer interceding on the behalf of God's people in the presence of God. And so through his service in God's house, the priest guards and keeps the tabernacle pure And so the way to God remains opened for worshipers. Without the work of the holy priests, there is no access to God. Do you see the blessing that the provision of the priesthood is? If not for this ceremony of God ordaining Aaron, then I suppose the priesthood would have died out with Moses. And the tabernacle would have been a symbol of God's presence, but a symbol of God's unapproachable presence. Sinners better stay away from there or they will be stricken dead. But through the priests, sinful worshipers can come into the very presence of God. Sin separates, but the priests bring sinners near to God. And this is symbolized most clearly in the ministry of the high priest, whose name here is Aaron. And that's why Leviticus chapter 9 is a climax of the Bible. All the commands all of the consecrating, all of it is for us to get to this point in Leviticus chapter 9 where Aaron makes sacrifices for the people. Listen to God's word from Leviticus nine fifteen through 18. Then he, Aaron, presented the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people and killed it and offered it as a sin offering like the first one. He presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the rule. And he presented the grain offering took a handful of it and burned it on the altar beside the burnt offering of the morning. Then he killed the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings for the people. And Aaron's sons handed him the blood and he threw it against the sides of the altar. So here in this little section, we see all the offerings mentioned. Aaron just goes through them all, starting with the sin offering, proceeding to the burnt offering, adding the grain offering on there, and then the sacrifice of peace offering that the worshipers were allowed to share. It seems like this is a complete kind of liturgy for us that would, have been, that would have happened routinely at the tabernacle. But this is the first time it's done for the people. This is the first time offerings are made in God's dwelling place for God's people. And because of the ministry of the high priests, the worshipers are now transported from the realm of death and sin to sitting at God's table. Listen to what happens next in Leviticus 9, 22 through 24. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. 
And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. It's amazing. This fire sparks out from the tent of meeting. Doesn't seem like a very good idea for the tent of meeting, right? But this is holy fire, like the fire that burned the burning bush but did not consume it. God appears to them in all of his glory there after the priests have made their offerings for them. The climax of the people's sacrificial worship and the high priest's ministry is that God dwells with his people. The Lord's fire consumes their sacrifices. Do you see how they have been brought near to God? We can understand why they shouted and fell down. God has come near to them. Brothers and sisters, this is why it's good news that we can call on Jesus as our high priest. We sing about it in Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us nigh to God. He brings us near to God. Throughout the Old Testament, the Lord worked through his mediators. He did this through Noah on Mount Ararat. He does this through Moses here. He does it through Aaron here. But God presents his holy priesthood to show us something of Christ's own holiness. Once the priests were made holy by God, they were qualified to minister in God's house. They were qualified to bring sinful worshipers near through their sacrifices. And now Jesus has come. Now Jesus is unlike these high priests in that he has no sin of his own. He doesn't need a sin offering made for him. But we do see that Jesus was anointed by God, by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. In this way, he's like Aaron, but even better than Aaron. Jesus is the one qualified to do the works of God. He's the one qualified to bring sinners near. He's the Holy One, and He alone brings us into God's throne room. Apart from Jesus, the best that sinners could do is to tremble in God's unapproachable presence, standing at the door of that terrifying neighbor but not a neighbor, your holy creator. What does Jesus do? He opens the door and brings us in. We come to God with only our sin, and Jesus atones for our sin with his own blood. He purifies us as he is pure. He brings us into his presence. He invites us to sit at God's table. If you feel that the separation from God and the way that your sin defiles you, don't let it keep you from God. Come to Jesus, the high priest, the one who washes us with his blood. Come to Jesus and be served by him. If you are not served by Jesus like that, you have no share in him. Your sin doesn't need to keep you from God because God has sent Christ He's provided Christ the high priest to cleanse us from our sin. Sin separates, but Christ the high priest brings sinners near to God. 
Let's not wallow in uncleanness. Let's not think we can do anything to remove the stain of our sin. Come to the high priest who makes us clean. When God gives us the eyes of faith to see Christ in his high priestly work and Christ in his perfect sacrifice, we are seeing the glory of God blaze out from heaven and consume our sin. May we be like those Israelites who when they saw the glory of the Lord fell down on their faces. May we worship our glorious Savior. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, how privileged we are to know of Christ, the high priest, to know of Christ, the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We confess that so often we are not moved by his presence the way we should be. We pray, Father, for help to seek Jesus in all of his glory and to worship you as we should. In Jesus' name we ask this, amen.